So we did a deal where the buyer came in, we were gonna do a full takedown, went through full diligence. The buyer must have spent a million dollars in professional consultants and New York lawyers diligencing us. We got to signing week and the deal fell apart. Uh, that's honestly, that week is where I use Jeff more than anyone because pandemic's gone crazy. People's portfolios are on fire. They think, hey, here's a bright spot. This deal's gonna get done and the deal falls apart. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan. And today on the show, John is joined by Ed Buckley, who sold his company, PeerFit, for almost $100 million. Not once, but twice. But before we get there, Ed couldn't divulge the details of the first acquisition, which is mentioned in this podcast. However, the company is rumored to be Peloton. And what I've done for you is I found a great article that outlines some of the deal terms of that acquisition. And I've actually linked it in the show notes page for you, which can be found over at built to sellcom along with the press release from the second acquisition made by FitOn. Okay, so let me tell you about today's guest, Ed, who started PeerFit, which is a digital platform that makes it easy for employers, insurance carriers, and brokers to offer fitness classes to their clients and employees. Now, there are a few really great nuggets to look out for in this episode. The first being the challenge that Ed faced growing the company to 150 employees, specifically, though, the part in which he shares the struggles he faced growing from 20 to 50, which I hope you'll find interesting. Now, also, Ed shares how he got the owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning to invest in the company and the positive impact that had on the business's growth. Here to tell John the full story is Ed Buckley. Enjoy. Ed Buckley, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about PeerFit. I want to hear the origin story. Take me back to 2011 when it all began. So I had much longer hair. I was in college. I wore flip-flops everywhere. Um, yeah, look, I was a fitness instructor. I was a graduate student at the University of Florida. And this idea that, you know, as a society, we were going to really start to lean in on wellness, that we were going to try to be more proactive, both the employers and the health plans. It, it, I was studying public health policy at the time. And it just became really obvious that there had been a shift uh, that from the ACA, which was being debated at the time, uh, there was going to be more funds available. And as somebody who- as Sorry, what's the ACA? Oh, uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Got it. Okay. Right? Got it. Yeah. Great. Thank you. I, I forget about the acronym sometimes. And you know, I was teaching fitness classes. So you just see like you're on the front lines and people love classes. The, the instructors in the classes are- the number one reason why people join a gym, it's the number one reason why people will leave a gym or studio, is that instructor, that class. And if you think back to that time, uh, fitness calendars were broadly paper PDFs. Sure. There wasn't a, this digital acceptance of calendars. And even if you could, the idea that your money was going to be solid to one place for 12 months, both as a consumer, you're being locked into 12-month contracts, 
And then from the wellness dollars that were available from your employer health plan, it was pick one place and that's the place you've got to go to for the next 12 months. So it'd be like, you know, I could, you know, in Toronto, we have good life fitness. So like I could become a good life member and then I'd go to their, you know, classes. But you're saying what you were finding in 2011 was that consumers were like, they, you know, they'd go to a, a yoga class at a yoga studio because they really like, you know, ex, you know, Bob, the yoga instructor, but they'd go to a boxing class at a different facility because they really like Cindy, the boxing teacher. And so you were finding they were, they were kind of uh, mixing and matching studios and, and instructors and it was becoming a bit of a spaghetti ball for them to manage this. Is that, it, was that? Absolutely. Kind of like, it, it was the beginning of the kind of class-based revolution, which right. turned, I think, the fitness industry on its head. Up to that point, it was all about big box gyms, one location, one membership. And really in the 20 teens, you had this revitalization and so many people entered the market and you had so many small uh, boutique locations, which were great because now you had all these entrepreneurs, these people that were previously personal trainers or group fitness uh, trainers that were stuck to a brand. And you you had thousands and thousands of new locations. So from our stance, what we saw was both the consumer had more choices and ultimately would demand flexibility. But then as the payers, the health plans and employers, there was no way that they wanted to manage multiple venues and multiple different you know, people that they needed to pay. So we said, what if we could help scale personalization for the payers? It gives them the best possible outcome. We're seeing that's where the best engagement's at. And while everybody thinks of us as a wellness company, we really were a fintech company for the wellness industry, right? We would be there to manage the network, manage the payments, and try to drive as much engagement as we possibly could. Got it. I want to get into the business model a little bit and kind of dumb it down for me so I can kind of understand it. But before I do that, I'd be remiss not to ask you, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile before we started. I noticed that you were, I think, University of Florida bachelor's degree, and then I think a master's, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, a doctorate. So I should be calling you Dr. Buckley here, not Mr. (laughs) Ed. But what struck me is that 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 is a very rare trajectory for an entrepreneur. Most entrepreneurs kind of get the itch much earlier, and the idea of being in school for that long is kind of an athema, would be like an allergic reaction to that much <laughs> academic life. Well, at what point in your journey did you start to realize that y- you wanted to start a company as a career versus pursue uh, the health from the practitioner perspective? So I actually have started three companies and all three was while I was in school. So the first one was during my master's program, made enough money to basically kind of live like a student king in in grad school world at University of Florida. I parlayed that into my master's thesis, which was essentially the idea for PeerFit. And I was I was honestly chastised at my academic institution about, you know, your master's thesis is not Shark Tank. We're, we are here to do research and research only. And I was very off put by that. And I probably would have left, except they had just started a new program at University of Florida called the Digital Health um, Center. And they were obsessed with new solutions, digital solutions. How do you take traditional health interventions, 
smoking cessation, driving more physical activity, you know, things like that. And I had to use modern, you know, cell phone, smartphone approaches to them. And so they came to me and said, hey, we actually love that you've got a new startup. Hmm. Why don't you come up the hill? We'll give you a full ride. You do your PhD and can focus all of your time and research on everything surrounding peer fit. Thought, so yeah, this is my question. You were an entrepreneur first. <laughs> oh yeah, Big time. and and, uh, and 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 just happened to be in the health industry as opposed to an academic that kind of stumbled into entrepreneurship. That's yeah. the, that was the question that I was I was really curious about. That's super helpful. I want to go to 2014 where you made the switch to enterprise. But before though, I, I I'm still trying to get my head around the direct to consumer model. So I'm a I'm a I, I'm me. And I, I, again, I, I like a yoga teacher at one studio and a boxing teacher at another studio. What, what am I subscribing to an app? Like, is this pre iPhone? I'm trying to get my timing right. So the iPhone was out. Certainly wasn't yeah. widely adopted. It was a honestly a, like a a paper pass at the time, right? You, know, like you can oh, buy okay. those things to go lots of places. We had to teach the gyms and studios that it was okay to do business with their competitors. So the first consumer version was literally almost like a punch card where it was, wow. I get X number of visits here, X number of visits here, so on, so on, so on. Like and Subway Sandwich used to have a little card and they totally. like put the print in it. <laughs> like after yeah. eight sandwiches, you got the ninth for free or whatever. And, and yeah. it was remarkable. People loved it. But then on their exit interviews that we do with users, we kept getting this like visceral angry reaction. We're like, well, you used all of your classes. What are you angry about? They're like, well, I'm angry that it's over and that it's only, uh, you know, 10 punches and I'm out. And at the time, because remember, this was like gyms were so worried about dealing with other gyms. That was the concession was, okay, we'll only let somebody come three times in two months to your facility. Once it was successful, we realized this product has to be a subscription. This has to be an ongoing kind of unlimited, more of like, hey, you have an X number of tokens and however you want to use them in the ecosystem is up to you. And, and that's, that's when we were like, okay, now we're on to something. And it was at that exact time that we made that shift when we got an investment from Florida Blue, which is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Florida. And they said to us, this is an enterprise solution. This is not a consumer. You've got consumer grade. You fix the consumer's problem. Imagine if you could sell that to a business. You've got something that users want to use. You've proven engagement and, and the want from the user. So imagine if we could bundle it as an enterprise solution. And I said, why don't you humor us? Spend the next 30 days and just go talk to some employers. And it was obvious after the 30 days, like that was the way to go. Okay, so I'd love to explore that, but before doing that, what was the business model with the tokens? Were you were you buying classes from the gyms like at a discounted rate, or were they giving them to you for free on almost a sampling model? Like, how, what was the economic model of the direct to consumer play? Both. We did a little. We did some testing with both. We did the okay. sampling. Hey, give us two or three of your classes per person, and it's nothing different than your free trials that you would do. It's our funnel coming in, and we'll monetize all of that for us, right? So kind you, of that. Then okay, there was another are, test that we did where we said, "Hey, we'll give you X per visit that someone shows up to." Got it. Got it. So you're charging the the athlete, the, you know, the fitness person, the person that's consuming the classes and, and, and then getting the classes from the instructors at a, you know, either 
preferred rate or discounted rate, or in some cases, a sampling rate and so forth. Yep, like an arbitrage and so I'm assuming model. That was very expensive to acquire onesie, twosie consumers at a time. Like, how were you going about trying to sign people up for it? Yeah, that was one of the things that the light came on. We're like, we're spending so much money to acquire people, and then we lose them 60 days later, right? So it was, if, if we spent all that money, but then they were our member for the next year, man, this model looks way different. What would it cost That's, you to win a new customer in those days from the, in the old model, pre-2014? Hundreds of dollars, right? Hundreds, hundreds of dollars. And you're only monetizing them at what rate? Like what would you get from them when they bought the 60-day plan? Um, I think we, you know, we're selling it between $25 and $50 per is what it oh, was. Wow. Okay, yeah. so you're totally underwater at this point. Totally. Who's totally. financing this? At like, are you kicking in cash? Have you got some money from investors, or what's this uh, again before yeah. 2014? Yeah. So before 2014, it was all friends and family. So <laughs> like people like my dad and people that I taught fitness classes to, and some local doctors and some local attorneys um, from the greater University of Florida community in Gainesville. We you know we we raised. And you have to think like at that time, Florida was a terrible place to raise capital for a small business, a startup. Um, it's certainly a little bit different now. And I was, for all intents and purposes, I was a new you know, founder and I was still a kid. I was a grad student. So sure. rather than having the credibility to go out and raise large swaths of cash, I mean, I literally, it was 5,000 a check, 10,000 a check, 5,000 a check, 15,000 a check. And we put together... $205,000 off of literally five and $10,000 checks. Wow. And how much of the company did you have to give away for the 205? You know, I think at the time, the way that the valuation was, was just under 20%. So about a fifth of the company at that time. So you're valuing it around a million bucks, even though mm -hmm. it's really nascent early. It's kind of totally on a dream or whatever. Yep. That's helpful. And you mentioned there's a we. You had a co-founder. Tell me about him or her. Yeah. So it's funny. There was actually four of us grad students. They were all friends, all grad students at the time. I'd been working on this idea for a couple of months. And my buddy from undergrad had moved back to do his MBA. And I said, well, look, if you're moving back, you might as well help me. I just started working on this project. And, you know, it turned from the two of us to the four of us. And, you know, the four of us just think of the stereotypical story of four college kids working on an idea. You know, that's really what it was for the first couple of years. And did um, you formalize the shareholders agreement and did you go through the whole, like, did you make it, did you formalize it or was it all just sort of informal? It was informal until we started taking money in and one of our investors demanded, right, as you <laughs> smartly should have, hey, you guys need a legal charter. You need a shareholders agreement. You guys need to put on paper what you are. And so I was really fortunate that we got led in that direction. And, and so if you think the attorney we hired at that time, this is so rare, is still our attorney today. Wow. The fact that rare. the person, yeah. some grad students would get introduced to was someone who would ultimately help us grow to you know, a hundred million dollar valuation and complete mega deals with some of the largest fortune 50 companies out there. It's just very, very rare. Um, I, I mentor a lot of other companies and sometimes that's one of the first questions I ask them, who are you represented by? 
And it's like, oh, a friend of mine who practices such and such law. I'm like, they don't know anything about what you're going to be going through. Uh, or, hey, we found this great firm that represents tech companies or startups or whatever, but they're out of New York City. And I'm like, well, then you're paying $700 you know, an hour. Surely you can, you know, I always try to introduce them to ours because I found them so fair to work with. They're out of the research triangle and they've been great. And we saw them today. So such a such a as you as you rightly point out rare for sure how did you stick handle the splitting of the equity with buddies because this one really confounds me i've never started a company with friends so i i i struggle to think how i would deal with it because there's that you know we're all buddies it's three musketeers i know there's four of you in your case but you're all friends you're all doing something cool it's all, it's all a big experiment and so somebody pushes you to the point was no, you got to actually put this up in writing. And then in writing, it says that Ed Buckley has X percent of the company and Jane Doe has Y percent of the company. All of a sudden it goes from, we're all in this together, we're all buddies to, it can get, I would imagine it would get a little less than cordial at that point, because now we're into kind of quantifying and monetizing the value each of us are bringing to it. Like, how did you stick handle those conversations without losing the friends along? Not the way? well. <laughs> <laughs> um, uncomfortable for sure. And, you know, we weren't all even and we didn't come into it even. I don't think anyone expected to be even. Let's say this was my project I was working on. Then we brought in one, then we brought another, right? So, um, Definitely uncomfortable. Not everyone was originally happy. And, you know, no one I don't think is ever going to be happy because one person gets too much, then someone else is upset, right? But we went through it um, the best way that we could and just explained, you know, everyone got to explain why they were happy or upset or what they would be, you know, if they weren't ultimately felt like they didn't get what they were looking for in the upfront piece, ways that over the next couple of months or years, you know, things that we could do to hopefully drive value and, and show our appreciation for what people worked on. Uh, and that's something that we, we did, right? That was for that group. I didn't take any more equity and I even gave them some of my equity a few years later as you know, I, we were able to see how dedicated they were to the project. So I, I think that was one that was an evolving process for sure. Yeah, and it sounded like you got to a point where commercially everybody was at least reasonably satisfied. I'd be curious, and again, if I'm putting you in a sticky spot, you can just disregard the question, but I'd be curious to know whether your friendships lasted, like whether they sustained the yeah. challenge of building a business together. So I suppose I'm more of the statistical anomaly than they are, right? If you think about PeerFit, we're in our 11th year and I am still the CEO 11 years later. And and I know not everybody is listening as, you know, a venture-backed kind of high-growth company, but we were and are. And if you just look at how often does the founder, after raising 50 plus million dollars, either gets kicked out or still wants to be there after, you know, an M&A or two M&A transactions, it's just really rare. So I'm certainly more of the anomaly. It's funny, one of, I just was on the phone with one of them, you know, last week. N none of them um, are still with the company today. And they all exited at different times. And if you think about, we were young men in grad school. And so by the time you graduate and either your parents or your soon to be spouse start saying, hey, you need to be working a real job, right? You need to be making real money. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of other opportunities that people took and I encouraged it. I get it, right? Like I was, I was never the one who was begrudging someone because we were working for ourselves and making peanuts, right? You're all of a sudden you're 25 to 30 years old and, and life's knocking on your door. And so this um, happened in these, in these cases with these three other individuals, they eventually left because they wanted to get quote a real job. Yeah. For, for, for two of them, for sure. One stayed on for a long time um, as we grew the company um, until it just became kind of th that time. So. Got, got it. That's, that's helpful for sure. 2014, you were just kind of getting into it with the Florida blue uh, sort of moment, shall we say, yeah. where they said, man, this would be a great enterprise solution. And I've done a little bit of research. I think I know what you mean, but I would love to, to have you explain in layman's terms what it means to be an enterprise healthcare play. What, 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 what was that shift about? To answer that, I actually want to give an example. Years later, it was probably 2018 or something like that. We were at a healthcare conference and you had all these healthcare companies saying, all of these direct-to-consumer tech companies always want to come and work with health plans, and they just think it's so easy. Hey, I've got this great product consumers use. I'll just go to you, and you can give it to them or sell it to them for me. And they're like, they don't understand what that means. The fact that you now are, are working with a regulated entity from the compliance, the HIPAA compliance, the governments, the audits that you're going to have to go through, right? It's so much more than, hey, employer, I've got this cool thing. Just give it out to your people. So there is so much that happens when you become a B2B organization. Now, selling through employers is a way lower bar to clear than going through health plans, which is predominantly what we do, right? We sell through health plans. That is, you know, employers still, you've got to have you know, account services, client services, the way that you do billing and reporting just for the client versus how the individual uses your product. You've really got to scale that up. And like I said, a lot of direct-to-consumer entities don't have that muscle yet. And they sometimes prematurely jump into B2B thinking that it's going to be really easy. Okay. That's that's good background. Now, let me try to distill what the business model was. So in the early days, I think we've, we've covered, it was direct to consumer, meaning you were signing up people who wanted to get fit and, and they could punch these cards. Florida Blue comes in and says, man, this would be a great enterprise play, meaning you, you sold it uh, to businesses that had health benefits for their employees. And those health benefits are the cost of those benefits go up and down with the health of them, that employee base. So the healthier they are, the more, uh, the less they pay for health insurance, pr presumably. And, and your fitness classes or solution enabled, it was a great way for employees in these companies to get fit. And so in that way, it made a, a natural solution for an insurance provider to add peer fit to a group of other offerings, including dental and pharmaceutical care and other, is that, am I getting it basically right? Nail on the head. Yep, exactly. And, and the one thing that I will add to that is sometimes they weren't concerned with the immediate medical ROI because it's difficult to calculate it in a short term. So what they saw this as, this was the age of consumers getting more benefits than ever, right? And so they just saw this as, this was a great employee 
perk. This was a great way to attract a younger, more active, vibrant, you know, uh, recruiting, uh, you know, tool to, to bring people in and keep people that, that were coming into your workforce. So I think they made the natural leap that if we're helping people get active, sure, they're going to be healthier, but they really looked at this as, hey, come work for us. And part of our benefit package is not only medical and dental, we're going to help pay for you to go kind of wherever you want to go to gym, studio, streaming, and everything in between. Cool. And so were you selling to the insurance company and making the pitch that they should add peer fit to their offering or were you selling to the end business uh you know and saying you should ask your insurance provider to include peer fit both in the beginning right you can't walk up to a health insurance company and say hey i'm a startup let's do business and you're doing things all wrong do it the way i tell you to so we were selling to employers as a means to an end because we knew the ultimate leveraged place to be was inside the health plan but we needed traction and we needed employer clients to prove it was working to help, as I just said, build that muscle of being a good B2B company, one client at a time. So by the time, I think we had about 25 clients before the health plan finally said, okay, let's really do this, right? We'd had 25 clients worth of getting things wrong and correcting them with small stakes to pay. You get things wrong at scale, it, it's pretty painful and detrimental. So luckily for us, one client at a time, we got to improve our muscle memory and become a better company, frankly. Got it. And take me through how this uh, mirrors up or matches up with your financing journey. So early days, kind of back of the napkin stuff, you raised a couple hundred grand from friends and family. At what point did did you then formalize that into a into a kind of a, a more formal round of financing? Was it around this 2014 timeframe? Is that yes, what triggered the need to raise money? 2015, 2016, we subsequently raised two rounds of funding. One was about two and a half million dollars. And then the next year we raised about $8 million. So we got pretty big pretty quickly <laughs> in yeah. that sense, right? And, and just managing a team, this was undoubtedly the biggest learning curve that I went through as an operator was in 2016, we had about 20 employees working at PeerFit. And by the time COVID, you know, hit in March, 2020, we had 150 employees. Wow. that's and, and, and forget about the number of clients that you're managing, just growing at that pace where we were almost doubling every single year. Um, I was a young CEO. I certainly, <laughs> certainly made a lot of mistakes during that time um, and have learned from them and how that's probably one of the things I enjoy coaching, you know, first time or, or younger, you know, uh, founders, owner operators uh, about it's just that period, like, it always seems to be sometime when you grow from about 20 to 40, 20 to 50, everything changes. And I've what heard was it. The big, what was the biggest mistake you made growing from 20 to 40 employees? And I'd love to hear something very specific, like something that 
in retrospect, you kind of laugh about now, but something very specific that you messed up going from 20 to 40. Cause I agree with you 20 to 40, uh, is lots of, you know, and you know, there's lots of documented evidence that says getting to 10 million in revenue, which oftentimes sort of is around that yeah. 20 to 50 employee is a huge, huge challenge. Uh, it goes beyond just the founder and some helpers that you've got to create structure and layers of management and so forth. Just tell me a look up a mistake you made that you look back on now and think, wow, that was a, a real blunder. Yeah, I think the problem was you had this original group of people. So uh, my personally, I love to be in the trenches with people. I love to lead from the front, which has its own positive, but definitely has its own negatives too, right? So by my presence doing that, I inadvertently was in, I think, motivating that original group of people to say, we want things done the same way we've always done it. We're the original people. We're the OGs. And look, I can go to Ed whenever I want to. I have direct access to Ed whenever I want to. And it undermined, once you get to about 20, you start to bring in subject matter experts. You start to bring in more expertise and people who aren't here to work at some startup who just kind of shoots from the hip. They are there to institute bureaucracy for good or bad, right? And I allowed the bureaucracy to constantly be undermined by allowing people to just come to me and me being down with them and having direct access. It's like, that's something you're like, well, why would you want bureaucracy? And why shouldn't anyone be able to come to you? Well, because you had the old group of people who were unwilling to let the company evolve to what it needed to become, right? It's Yeah. And it's so natural too, because you know you don't want to come off like a prick. Like these are the people that got you to where you are. These yeah. are the first 20 and oh wow, well Ed's all of a sudden Mr. Highfalutin because he won't even talk to his own VP. I have to talk to like you get that sort of criticism from the original twenty, like oh like Ed's all full of himself now. But if you don't do as you describe, which is let the decision makers and the managers you've hired do the job, if you provide access, you're basically undermining what you're building. I think it's such a really common thing that people deal with all the time. Yeah, it was it was really hard for me because I I love to like I said to be kind of in the thick of things, um, but by doing so, I was actually my compassion was strangulating both efforts. Right, that original people who have kind of knowledge of your product and culture, but I was strangling what the company was trying to become at the same time. Such a such a great point. I really appreciate you sharing it. Uh, when you raised two and a half million dollars, the first two hundred and five grand valued the company around a million bucks. What was the value of the business when you raised the two and a half million? What was the perform money valuation? Probably uh, around somewhere around ten million. I, I don't remember <laughs> off the top of my head, but probably somewhere in that kind of ten million range. And do you remember what it was when you were ra- when you raised eight million? Oh, I remember that number because that was quite a negotiation. Um, it was just south of $30 million. Why was it such a, a unique negotiation? The market was wild at the time. I mean, it was wild for startups. You could go out and raise on insane valuations. Um, and so term sheets were like all over the place. And we actually went with one of the lowest value term sheets because of who it was and what we were going to be able to get. It's like you watch Shark Tank and and you know Mark Cuban says, yeah, I might be offering you less than you want, but you get to work with me and think of how much quicker I'm going to be able to 
you know, grow our business. And so we went with the lower valuation and it was the best decision I've ever made ever to this day. Um, that was when we started working with Jeff Finnick, the owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning. And he's been an amazing, he actually told me, we were, just, I remember negotiating and we were on the phone and he just said, listen, Ed, if we do this deal, I'm going to far, fight so hard for you. Uh, I'm going to work so hard for you. I'm going to be the best partner that you could have ever have. Um, and if, and you know, you're going to take a slightly lower valuation, but I'm going to tell you, you know, you're going to, I'm going to be a great partner. And he has lived up to that. Anytime I've ever needed anything from him, whether it be patience, whether it be him getting a phone call to somebody else for me, um, he has been a world-class partner to work with. Awesome. What was your revenue at the time of raising an evaluation for 30 million? Like I'm trying to figure out what multiple of revenue. We were probably that, but a lot of our contracts are always a year out, right? So when, you know, we did a million, let's say that year, we were growing at four or five X a year. So we already had great um, forecast to next year's revenue. We, at that time, we were growing so fast. Most of what we were being valued on was a discount of next year because in health plans, your contracts are always a year out. So what so, was your pipeline for the, the the next year, like next 12 months? If you Probably remember? like four or five million. Got it. So so if you look historically, it would have been a massive multiple on revenue. But if you looked at the pipeline, to your point, almost everyone looks at the pipeline because it's 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 booked 12 months beforehand. Yeah. You had you had a good visibility into four or five million. So it was more like a six times. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, the, the market at that time was completely wild. Got it. Yeah. Can you tell me a story? Because I, th I think, I think, uh, I really appreciate your transparency around the fact that it was not necessarily the highest offer, but it was the one you went with in the end. Um, and, and you mentioned, uh, this is the founder of the Tampa Bay lightning. I wasn't, what, what is his or her name? I don't, I don't know. J Jeff Vinnick. Got He's Jeff. The, the owner of the lightning. Got it. Okay. So can you tell me a story of where Jeff, the value of Jeff as an investor played out. Like, I'd love to know a specific story if it's in a boardroom somewhere where Jeff stood up and said, "You guys are getting it wrong." I'd, I'd love to just hear because because a, a lot of a lot of investors will give you a shoulder to cry on. <laughs> a lot of investors will you know will will be thoughtful leaders and so forth. But but you've really gone out on a limb and said, "No, no, Jeff was unbelievable." So tell me a story about. About something specific he did that really made you, made you feel so passionately loyal to Ed, to uh, to Jeff in particular. So he's probably one of the most prolific um, fund managers out there for people who don't know him. Right, he was up at the uh, Fidelity Magellan Fund. After that, he had his own fund, hundred percent return in one year. Just uh, everything he touches is very successful. But the other thing that I had heard reputation wise was just what a quality human being he was. And so because of that, you have someone who's very successful, but also is just a good person. People trip over to try to do business with him. And I knew this to some extent, but I had never fully grasped what it would mean. When we got that investment from him, at the time, it was one of the, the most amount of dollars he'd put into a startup, a pure startup. Everyone wanted to do business with us. Um, we subsequently got the owner of the Boston Celtics, Wick to join our, invest and join our board. 
literally off of the fact that Jeff had invested and joined our board. And, you know, Wick being in Boston, Jeff had been in Boston, you know, I think Wick saw the opportunity for me and join a startup board with Jeff Innick. How's that a bad thing, right? It isn't. And simply having Jeff's seal of approval, you know, Wick's just one example. Um, and Wick and I have gone on to be good friends and he's he's been great to me as well. But Jeff's approval means a lot to the industry and he, he doesn't pick his deals lightly. And it was, it was such a great seal of approval. And so that's externally, but internally, he's always been very direct and candid, but does so truly in a safe place where you say, okay, he just called me out or just called out something that is unfavorable that the company is doing, but it is not, he's never seeking to penalize or gain something out of it. It's like, hey, I wanted to make sure you saw this. What can we do about it? And he is always willing to help give resources, um, make sure his staff's available if we need help to kind of review things. So he is just a very fair, uh, very fair person. I wonder as well if it ever became lopsided at the board level with someone like Jeff, just given his influence and, and sphere of influence over others, the Boston Celtics founders all of a sudden called you up. What? It's kind of a big deal. Like, did you ever feel beholden to Jeff or vulnerable that Jeff may change his tune or that he had too much power that, that he could make or break your company because if he turned less favorable towards your business, he would have the, power, presumably, to, to cause all kinds of havoc. Did you ever feel vulnerable in that? I'm not sure if the vulnerable is the right word, but beholden to him or so controlled by under his thumb. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Look, there's no doubt that both contractually, he had a lot of power compared to anyone else, as well as influence. He has, as Jeff goes, everyone goes because he is so fair. If you had someone who perhaps didn't have his reputation, um, someone having that amount of influence and or power would have been problematic. Absolutely no doubt. And, and while I, I, you know, I'm not going to go into anyone's private discussions, I will say, look, we had discussions going into COVID during COVID where it is like, hey, Ed, this industry other than, you know, kind of food service is the most impacted industry. You know, that's not, Jeff is not sitting around looking at the industry at that time being like, what a great industry to be in. Let's keep investing more into it. But it was never, I never felt like, oh, I'm in, a, I'm in a bind, I'm in a pickle because Jeff, you know, is unhappy or not so favorable on the overall marketplace at the time. So we always had discussions. And I mean, ultimately, the way that our relationship worked was he has no interest in running this business, right? He picked Peerfit because of me, um, if I could put it that way. Uh, he has no interest in, in trying to take over a company and running it, right? He's, he's, got, yeah. he's got his own companies to do. So um, that was one thing that even when he found the market less than favorable, he never found our company or particularly our leadership unfavorable, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, it, it does. It does. And I think I'm going to leave it there because I want to get to the the actual sale of the business. So you, it's 2020. The pandemic is shutting gyms down all around the country. Um, how did that 
impact you and and what was the trigger that that made you go through the first transaction that closed in 2021 so it it's interesting because our money that comes in on our supply demand kind of business model, the demand side are dollars from health plans, which as I mentioned, are almost always a year out. So our dollars are essentially available during the pandemic, but they got nowhere to go, right? Gyms are closing their doors. You recall all of these gyms just started going on Zoom and teaching classes. So we were pushing people to digital experiences, digital, digital, digital. That way they still had experiences. They weren't going crazy in their home from lack of exercise. Um, and let our machine still work. Dollars coming in, they're going to experiences, pushing dollars into the community, pushing the, the data back to health plans that people are going. Um, at that time, uh, there was a lot of interesting movement in the space. And we had gotten approached by a very, very well-known brand um, well, it was, it was reported as Peloton. I know you can't necessarily name it, but I can. I did my research prior to our conversation, and and and, and I, I think the brand maybe you don't have to confirm or deny was Peloton at the time. Peloton was just on fire, right? I mean, it was just it, it was printing money. I mean, it was. I think they started. I think the shares were around twenty bucks a share in in march of 2018 unfortunately i bought some or excuse me uh, march of 2020 um and then i think they got up to 170 or 180 before now they're at six or ten or something like that so again you may not confirm or deny but I, that's my understanding is peloton was was sort of sniffing around I can tell you intimately familiar with their stock that year. And that sounds about accurate of where it was. Um, so we did a deal where the buyer came in. We were going to do a full takedown, went through full diligence. The buyer must have spent a million dollars in professional consultants and New York lawyers diligencing us. We got to signing week and the deal fell apart. Uh, that's honestly... That week is where I use Jeff more than anyone because pandemic's going crazy. People's portfolios are on fire. They think, hey, here's a bright spot. This deal's going to get done. And the deal falls apart. And what triggered the deal falling apart? I honestly can't go into that. It was just, just some elements of the deal of, was, we're not going to work out. And Jeff was very calm. We were able to lean on our banker to figure out what to do. We realized, hey, this buyer wants something here. They might not want the whole company, but clearly they want something. So we went back to them and figured out what they wanted. They wanted really our underlying legacy platform, which was fine because we were gonna go on and build our third gen platform and migrate everything over. So it was a bit of a win-win, right? We could do a deal, inject some capital into the balance sheet, return some money to shareholders, and kind of get a kick in the rear to go get our third gen platform done. This buyer can get something out of it and do what they need to do. So, so what, sorry, help me understand. So what was the second gen platform? This is where people could pick, they could go on the app, pick a class, and they were they had sort of a, a, a credit balance. Yeah, that's been. I mean, the first the first gen platform did that as well. But every okay. couple of years, as we got more sophisticated, we were rebuilding the platform, right? And we still had a considerable amount of the legacy business on that legacy platform. And so we had built the second gen platform at the end of nineteen, 
And that was for our new Medicare population. And we said, man, we built the whole platform in six months for the Medicare side. We need to get the commercial legacy business off of Gen 1. And let's just build a Gen 3 and pull the legacy and the Medicare onto that, right? And sunset the old platform. And so this buyer wanted that. They wanted some of the engineering the platform. The first gen platform. They just need a very I, basic version of it. Yeah. And um, they they needed some of the engineers who helped build it. So we put together a deal where they would get underlying tech, some of the engineering team. We did an all cash deal, which at the time I received a fair amount of criticism for because everyone said, Ed, this buyer's stock is exploding. Why wouldn't you take stock? And, you know, during COVID, during a crisis, cash is king. And so we did an all cash deal, which in hindsight was so smart to have done all cash. Um, and so it was very, very fortunate that we had now new capital during a time where it was very difficult to raise cash. We returned a significant amount of that capital back to our shareholders. We then went on with a six month restricted period to build and migrate onto the third gen platform. We did that, passed our audit that, you know, the underlying original legacy had been deprecated. Um, you know, we, we launched this whole new platform and within 60 days of launching the third gen platform, we get in the Inc. 5000, 140th in the Inc. 5000 and our phone rings and we get five different new potential buyers all wanting to buy the company because now it was like, hey, you stabilized after that deal. We weren't sure what, you know, things were going to be like. Clearly you're kicking butt. Um, and from there, one of those was fit on. And I loved, it's a husband and wife founding duo with just the most insane track record. Um, loved them. Same thing. The initial offer was not even the highest offer that we got. But I was like, this team, this opportunity, uh, we were able to negotiate just an outstanding deal for both parties. It's been one of the most seamless mergers that has ever happened. Um, and since you know the deal, we've been rocking and rolling, closing new contracts that we never could have closed. And um, yeah, it's just been great. That's awesome. I'd love to go back to the 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 first transaction uh, because I, I find this. I mean. Again, confirm or deny, but but I heard that the first transaction with this mystery buyer with the exploding stock that was close to a hundred million dollars. Is that anywhere near accurate? It was south of that, but not by a considerable amount. Wow. And and just for an aging, if I can call it that, an aging platform and some engineers like that just seems like incredible. Like you were going to get rid of the platform. <laughs> like, the, like, the buyer so needed to buy time. If the buyer was going to go build this from scratch, it would have taken years, right? Why? And, Why not just two engineers in a, in a room in a bunker for two months and they would have, couldn't they have built it? Like what I, was I, it that was so hard to replicate? I will tell you as someone who's now <laughs> rebuilt this platform multiple times, Every team we brought in, because we've now rebuilt it essentially three times, every team always says, this is going to be so easy. And it, it, the complexity of the system cannot be overstated. 
um, with how this system works. On its surface, it looks so straightforward, but the underlying principles and logic is very complex. That is, after a series of trial of uh, kind of getting it right in errors, that you realize how the plumbing should work. So they were buying time. They, they were literally saying it would cost us, it could cost us $100 million to hire a fleet of engineers to build what this or is. Or worse, we could miss this opportunity um, because it took us two years to get right. Heck, it might have only, it might cost them less money to go and build it, but the opportunity might have been gone. And the opportunity they saw was to, 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 allow their classes to be billed back to an insurance provider? Was that the opportunity? The, the buyer saw the opportunity to enter the corporate space and yeah. thought that if they did not strike right then, then the opportunity might erode away. Okay. That's helpful for sure. That, that helps me understand why they paid such an enormous amount of money. But it, it, I, I'm so curious to know how you were able to carve out the the rights to continue to operate um that seems like a very tricky business it feels like uh, the visual i uh, when you see those videos of surgeons cutting out cancer it's like <laughs> it's like you look at that and you go gosh that, that, i just wouldn't want that job but it the, sounds similarly difficult to carve out these businesses into separate entities yeah the, I- the legal and banking team who crafted the, the contract and then the actual teams that performed the migrations, the clean room, the transition period. Like I can't, once again, I can't overstate enough how amazing all of those teams were. Um, the legal and contract language was definitely not fun <laughs> to be in those meetings. Uh, and then the, the six month period that we had to basically transition off and change hands and do everything was, you know, um, there's definitely tension at times, but overall I will, I do want to give uh, a major shout out to that court dev M and a and transition team from the buyer were just really great professionals that we knew whenever the teams hit roadblocks, I could pick up the phone and call their head of M&A and we're like, why are we having problems here? We both want the same things. We're both great partners to each other. And so just really hats off to to that team for sure. Okay. And so you end up on the Inc. 5000 list, which for those listening outside of America is the fastest growing companies in the United States. And that's obviously hunting ground for every private equity group and VC and money person and, and family office. And so you get on people's radar again. Were you looking to sell it at that time? (laughs) This was like the first time in two years we weren't looking to sell, right? Um, There had been so much inbound and just, you know, during COVID, there was just discussions left, right, and center. Everyone was having a conversation. They weren't sure what the market was going to be. So everyone was looking to gobble up or merge or be bought or, you know, so we, you just been in that mode for two years, right? And for the first time we thought, take, take a breath. The new platforms and migrated. We, you know, we've got this behind us. Um, we just are on the Inc. 5000. We've got the capital from the last deal. Let's just go out and build. We just thought, man, for the first time in years, let's just focus on building and immediately end back up in M&A mode. Um, so, you know, it's, it's September at the time we're recording this. 
And we signed the letter of intent with FitOn in September of last year. So it's pretty much 12 months, probably almost to the week that we signed that LOI. And FitOn came to you unsolicited? Did, did oh. we have other folks at the, at the table? All of them had come unsolicited. I had uh, Lindsay and Russell, the husband and wife founders. Lindsay and I had spoken on a panel during COVID. And I actually remember finishing that panel being like, gosh, she's really smart. I really appreciated her, um, especially compared to some of the other panelists that were on there. I just thought she was really, really smart. And they thought to themselves, they're direct to consumer, fitness streaming business, um, category leader, right? 12 million members just dominating the space. And uh, they thought, man, we really need to enter the health plan reimbursement space. Who's an expert out there? Same thing, let's buy time, let's buy expertise. Who is out there? And they thought, nobody's better than PeerFit out there. Let's give Ed a call and see if they're even open to a discussion. And yeah. Here we are. And and so here we are indeed, but you had you'd sort of sold a fairly big chunk of the legacy business and you were rebuilding the third gen. Did you have like kind of revenue in a traditional way? I'm trying to think of like what like what were they buying other than Ed and the engineers that built it and oh, all yeah. our revenue completely stayed intact. So the first transaction, no equity, no revenue was exchanged. They were literally here, let me copy paste code. It's yours. Here's an engineering team. Our book of business, our clients, our everything stayed with us. So the, the only risk was, can we migrate from the ticking clock of you've got six months to migrate off of third gen or to third gen platform, right? So basically the day that that happened, now the technology is back to being de-risked. You're the lizard that grew its tail back at that point. But all of our revenue, all of our clients, all of our everything stayed with us. The first transaction was nothing more than an asset sale. That's what it was. That's helpful for clarification. So you have revenue, you are, you're building third gen. And so what was the, what was your reaction to their original offer from Lindsay and Russell? I mean, when they kind of approached you, did they, they give you a letter of intent? Did, what was your reaction to it? Yeah, I remember thinking, <laughs> this is a great piece of advice for everybody. Like you, your initial reaction to an initial offer is in my opinion, not indicative of where things are going to end up. If you've not been through that process, there's so much of your emotion that gets tied up in your business. You built this, you operate it day to day. You always think the offer should be more. And I remember hearing the opening offer and thinking, hmm. I don't think there's any way that we're going to be able to do this deal. And our banker said, just sit tight, right? Let's, let's play this process out. And if we ultimately get to a deal that you and the board don't like, we don't have to do a deal, right? But don't be offended or emotional. And that's where another great learning lesson for me, I remember our board discussion when we were receiving offers at that time. And I remember being, and I'm not traditionally an emotional person, I remember being a bit emotional because I felt that the board was just like, yep, yeah, this is a great deal. Let's take it. And I, at the time, felt like, well, I'm not so sure I want to, right? And it was just kind of a, hey, let's move forward. And I remember our banker called me back and just said, I've never seen you with such bad body language before. What's wrong? 
And that's where, once again, I, I think about almost every offer we've ever gotten initially, you're just kind of like, oh, we're, we're worth more than this, right? And the deal gets there. That's the negotiating part. That's why, in my opinion, having a great banker and having a great lawyer are so important during an M&A process. They, A, get it out of your hands because you're going to be emotional. And B, they've done this so many times that they know how to take whatever the opening offer is. And maybe it's valuation, or maybe there's these hooks, or maybe there's earnouts. Or like, they know how to make the deal more attractive, honestly, to both parties, because the one side doesn't want to completely screw you over so that you're unhappy and you're not motivated to do this deal and do this transition. Um, but at the same time, they don't want to overpay you so much that they're you know, just wasting cash. So to ultimately find the deal where you're happy and motivated and they're happy with what they paid, that's the specialty of a great lawyer and a great banker, in my opinion, from what I've now been a part of. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so it sounds like there was a, a, a piece of this, which was sort of an earnout or a, like, are you able to share kind of a proportion or how they structured the, the, the future payment versus the upfront? Like what proportion, if you can address that at all? Yeah, I, I can't, but I will say we got really creative <laughs> with the deal for sure. It was even more creative than just upfront and earnout. We did some other things that I thought were a pretty creative solution, and that's where I'll credit Russell. Um, Ru Russell was a great partner during that time. That's why I think you know the the merger process of the company had gone so smoothly. Was um, you know, while Lindsay was running the company, Russell really ran that M&A process himself and just was a very, very good partner to us. Very fair, you know, um, always listened to when I thought, hey, we're 90% there, but I can't get it across the goal line on this one term. Can we be creative on something here? And like I said, to his credit, uh, the deal obviously got done because of just um, ways of, of never settling until we had it right. Well, it sounds like a, a fantastic transaction. Uh, it, uh, amazing that uh, it happened twice. I have a final list of lightning round questions. I know your time is precious. Are you able to answer a few more real quick, one or two word answer Let's questions? Let's do them. Let's do them. Awesome. Awesome. Slimiest trick an acquirer or investor ever tried to play on you? Yeah, I think just not being genuine. They came in to try to do diligence and had less than uh, respectable intentions to try to get some information. Biggest mistake you made during the selling process? I was overly involved. There were times that I should not have been involved and our leadership team and the banker should have been more involved and I should have been less involved. What was the lowest emotional point you reached during the sale process? Oh, it's easy. Um, it was my girlfriend's birthday. We had one thing left to go on the first deal, the full takedown deal. And the banker called me up and I thought, oh, I'm having a great day. What do you got for me? We got this last piece of the puzzle. And it was something very, very favorable from an economic perspective. And I said, what did we get? And she said, deal's dead. I was just like, oh my gosh, I've got to tell my staff who knows about the deal. I've got to call our board. Um, my girlfriend's birthday is ruined right now. So that was a really crappy day for sure. Highest moment you reached emotionally during your exit process? It wasn't on closing day. It was on the day that I knew the deals, both deals were going to be done. Um, 
closing to me was more of a formality. There's points where you're like, this deal is going to be done. How awesome is that? Because you work really hard behind the scenes on deals like this. And a lot of the time, 80% of it is you can't tell your staff, you can't tell your family, you can't tell anybody. Um, And so the moment that you can tell, I think your staff, because you know what's going to happen, to to watch the appreciation on their face about like, wow, I've had to be part of something major. Um, What a, you know, it's, it's the sense of satisfaction on your team's face. And so being able to finally go and be like, Hey, I'm telling you because this deal's going to happen. Those are, those are just awesome conversations. A lot of hugs, a lot of, you know, just really joyful moments. What was the moment that you realized the fit on deal was going to happen? Oh man, um, we left some of the most contentious issues for the last part, as you often do. And I think there was so much deal fatigue uh, that kind of both sides were just like, all right, you want this, we want this. Here's the middle. Let's just both take it and get this deal done. And that's what we did. And I thought, okay, if we if that piece is done, you know, you know what the gating items are that are going to be problematic. And as soon as that's finally done, you're like, Whew, all right, we can all be happy here. What resources did you turn to to educate yourself about the exit process? Jeff sounds like a great mentor, but were there books or classes you took or anything you can point to that was helpful for you as you approached your exit? Yeah, my mentor, Jim Phillip, he was our independent board member at PeerFit. Um, gosh, he's been the best resource to me. I met him probably like 2012, 2013. And he's one of the smartest, most level-headed uh, people that I've ever met. That's why he was our independent on our board. He, it just so happens his career is an investment banker. And mm-hmm. so going to the guy who I got to lean on every single day building the company, when it came deal mode, this was a guy who I trusted more than anyone and had done you know, a thousand deals in his lifetime. So I just honestly go to him and say, what are we doing? Help, help guide me here. Did you buy yourself a trophy to celebrate the win? The two wins? The first deal, the banker bought us a trophy and it was super cool. And so it's up somewhere, not on my trophy case here. And the second one- What was the trophy? Um, I can't describe it to you because it would probably give away <laughs> who the buyer was, but it is really cool inversion of our logo and what that buyer does. And the banker got it for us. And on the second deal with FitOn, I told the banker, hey, our team loves trophies now. We're going to do one. And we did a really cool lithosite with two apps of the FitOn app and the PeerFit app and our two you know, logos together. And it was, it was cool. It was really cool. That's awesome. Well, Ed, I uh, I really appreciate you the extra time and sharing the story. Where can people learn about FitOn and PeerFit? What's the best website for them to check out? Um, just honestly, go to Google and search PeerFit and search FitOn, um, and it's really easy to get to us. So, and if people want to reach out to you personally, are you a LinkedIn guy? Or I'm a huge Twitter? LinkedIn person. I try to always answer when people reach out to me. Um, so happy to help. All right. And we'll put Ed's profile in the show notes at builtthecell.com. Ed, thanks for doing this. Hey, thank you so much. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Ed. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, the article along with 
definitions for some of the more technical terms, go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode and want to help support the show, head over to Apple Podcasts where you can there leave a rating and review. It truly helps the show grow and get this podcast in front of more people just like you. If you know of someone who would be a great guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate where there you can nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Some of the best episodes of the podcast have come from nominations. So again, you can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate to nominate a guest or yourself today. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor today or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 